Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj here with a super special announcement before we get into today's episode. I started Beyond the Pearls podcast in May of 2021, and now, almost two years later, we're coming up to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe it. And you know what? I'm getting a little palpitations right here, a little, you know, SVT, superventricular tachycardia. I can't help it. I always drop these pearls, you know. Reaching the 100th episode is a huge milestone. And to celebrate it, I wanted to do something special, which is give away digital copies of my latest book. And what's the title? It's going to be Morning Report, the subspecialties, of course, Beyond the Pearls. And I made the little hand gesture, but you can't see it. So if you're hearing this, check the show notes and learn more about the contest and click the link to get entered. And you can be one of six winners to receive a copy of the book. Thank you all so much for listening. And now, let's get back to the show. Hi, and welcome to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls Medical Podcast. And I'm Dr. Raj. So today, what a surprise, I'm really excited. Why? It's because I get to do my favorite I word in the whole world. And what's that word? Integrate. And people always ask me, hey, how do we integrate basic science with clinical medicine? I'm going to show you how does the USMLE step one take a basic science question and make it clinically relevant to go to the bedside? Or converse of that, nowadays, you'll get something in step two and three or even the IM board exams, and they'll go back and throw a a basic science question in there. And how and why can they do that? I'll show you. So what's going to be the topic for today? It's going to be diabetic nephropathy, which in itself is a triple star high yield thing for the board exams. So let's start off with a couple of statements, a little overview about diabetic nephropathy. You know, it is the leading cause of end stage kidney disease. Diabetes is typically present for five to 10 years before the development of the nephropathy. So with that being said, let me kind of clump things together. I wish I could make this podcast, you know, hours upon hours, but no, I want you to have little small feedings of the mind. So let's kind of clump in monitoring and screening and diagnosis of diabetic nephropathy. 
So measurements of the estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is the EGFR, and screening for the presence of albuminuria is recommended for early detection of kidney disease in diabetics. Urinary albumin excretion can be determined from a random urine collection as the urine-albumin to creatinine ratio. So an elevated urine-albumin to creatinine ratio is going to be greater than 30, and that's 30 milligrams per gram. No, and this should be confirmed by multiple measurements over, you know, three to six months because temporary elevations may occur with biologic variability, illness, hyperglycemia, heart failure, hypertension, exercise, and menstruation in women. So annual measurements of the EGFR and the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio in diabetics may identify progression of nephropathy and guide therapeutic decisions. So yes, more frequent assessments may be necessary if a patient has worsening kidney function. But let me just put one blanket sentence in there. An estimated GFR of less than 30 mLs per minute warrants a referral to your favorite nephrologist in general. So I wanted to say that. So when I was reviewing, you know, the material for this podcast, one thing that came in the back of my mind was the debate. And many people have asked me this in my live lectures. Should we monitor albuminuria or is it proteinuria in diabetics? Which one is it and why? So I put a couple sentences in here to help us out. So even tiny amounts of albuminuria in diabetics, you know, predict subsequent proteinuria and kidney disease. So albuminuria is not only a marker of kidney disease, it's associated with all-cause mortality, kidney disease progression, and cardiovascular-related deaths. So albuminuria, rather than proteinuria, is now considered the gold standard. I'm putting that in bolded red for quantifying uh, urine protein. So with that being said, well, what causes diabetic nephropathy? So uncontrolled hypertension, hyperglycemia are the hugest risk factors for diabetic nephropathy. Thus, treatment to obtain a controlled blood pressure and a normal glucose is recommended. So a lot of my recommendations today are going to be based on the American Diabetic Association. So the ADA you know, definitely recommends an ACE inhibitor or an ARB as first-line therapy to slow progression of nephropathy and to prevent cardiovascular disease in non-pregnant individuals. Of course, you never, never want to give an ACE or ARB in a woman who is going to be pregnant. And really, the ADA strongly recommends this ACE and ARB in individuals who are diabetics. That's what we're talking about. Having high blood pressure, hypertension, having a reduced EGFR. How reduced? I mean, less than 60 mLs per minute. But I'll be honest with you, the fact that you're just dumping out albumin in the urine means you have chronic kidney disease. And the fourth thing is having an elevated urine albumin to creatinine ratio. So what's the number I want you to remember? It's going to be greater than or equal to 30. So, you know, if you have individuals with a urine albumin to creatinine ratio greater than 300, well, that's quite a bit of albumin that you're spilling in that urine. So I wanted to 
mention that. So here's where it gets super interesting and fun. And let's throw some basic science in there is that, you know, for patients with type 2 diabetes, we're talking about diabetic nephropathy, who have chronic kidney disease, and you get a urine albumin creatinine ratio of 300 or greater, that's a, a monster number, the American Diabetic Association recommends a sodium glucose linked transport to inhibitor to reduce the chronic kidney disease progression and also to help with cardiovascular events. So I also wanted to mention that if there are individuals are diabetics with chronic kidney disease who are at risk for these cardiovascular events and are unable to use the sodium glucose link transport 2 inhibitors, the American Diabetic Association recommends a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. And the one generic name that they recommend is going to be called phenyrenone. F-I-N-E-R-E-N-O-N-E. -E -E. Let me try it one more time. Phenerone. So that's going to be that mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. And the brand name of that medication is called Kerendia. K-E-R-E-N-D-I-A. That's the brand name of the medication. So obviously, I want to dive into a couple things here. What is this brand name, Herendia? So in adults with chronic kidney disease who are type 2 diabetics, Herendia fights chronic kidney disease differently than your diabetic medications. Now, it's important to mention that Herendia doesn't replace your, you know, your diabetes or high blood pressure medications. So even if you are already taking medications for your diabetes and high blood pressure, there may be more you can do to help protect your kidneys and delay damage that fortunately can lead you to dialysis or in some cases, a kidney transplant. So people have always asked me about dosing. So Kerendia is a once daily tablet and it has been shown um, to slow the loss of kidney function and reduce the risk of kidney failure in adults with chronic kidney disease who are type 2 diabetics. So, of course, the question now becomes, well, how does Kerendia work? And, well, to understand how Kerendia works, it helps understand why chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetics may contribute to continued progression over time. The three main factors that contribute to this progression of chronic kidney disease are the poorly controlled glucose, poorly controlled blood pressure, and inflammation and scarring of the kidneys. So while you know your diabetic meds and blood pressure medications may help control the glucose and blood pressure, Kerendia is the only medication uh, that blocks the mineralocorticoid receptor uh, from being overactivated. And when you get this overactivation, this will contribute to inflammation and scarring that can lead to that progression of, you know, kidney disease and also may worsen cardiovascular disease. Uh, so blocking these mineralocorticoid receptors is thought to slow the progression of chronic kidney disease in type 2 diabetics. So even if you are already taking medications for your diabetes and high blood pressure, there may be more you can do to help delay kidney damage uh, from chronic kidney disease. So I think that's very important clinically. And of course, talk to your nephrologist to see if you qualify for it. So something new out there. And that's what I love about 
doing my Beyond the Pearls podcast is to give you brand new hot off the press pearls. So one thing I wanted to talk about also is that I just mentioned SGL2 inhibitors and, you know, uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, specifically focusing on diabetic kidney disease. So, you know, patients with type 2 diabetes who have diabetic kidney disease and severely increased albuminuria, you know, despite using an ACE inhibitor or ARB, the American Diabetic Association recommends a treatment with a sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor. So I will mention this is that they, the ADA, also suggest the use of an SGL2 inhibitor in patients with diabetic kidney disease who have lower levels of urine albumin excretion, the SGL2 inhibitor is typically added to the patient's existing hypoglycemic regimen since SGL2 inhibitors have weak glucose-lowering effects, particularly in patients with reduced kidney function. So SGL2 inhibitors are effective at slowing the progression of kidney disease, reducing heart failure, I know that, and lowering the risk of kidney failure and death in people with kidney disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, SGL2 inhibitors also protect the kidneys of people with chronic kidney disease who do not have diabetes, which is very interesting because this whole podcast is really focusing on, you know, diabetic nephropathy, but I wanted to make that statement. So I know what you're asking me, how do SGL2 inhibitors protect the kidney? So the nephroprotective effects of SGL2 inhibitors are a class effect, okay? And there are many of these medications in this class. They are approved in people with normal or impaired GFR. I wanted to mention that. So these effects that I'm going to be talking about are also observed in non-diabetic, uh, lean, and normal tense of individuals, suggesting that the mechanism extends beyond glucose lowering, uh, weight lowering, and blood pressure lowering effects that accompany their glucosuric actions in diabetic patients. So what is the key? How do they protect the kidney? Is through tubular glomerular feedback. Yes, I just told them went back to USMLE step one. So when we talk about SGL2 inhibitors uh, cause more sodium to pass along the nephron. So remember that if you go back to one of these USMLE step one books in the proximal tubule, well, you're gonna see the sodium glucose link transporter. So what happens is, is that when you use category medication, both sodium and glucose are going to go into the tubule. So go from the proximal tubule to the loop of Henle to the distal, all the way to those collecting ducts. So what happens is there's going to be more sodium that's going to be moving in the tubule. And this sodium is sensed by these macula cells. And remember, it's tubular glomerular feedback. So if you're getting more sodium that's actually hitting these uh, macula cells, it's called tubular glomerular feedback because it's going to affect the afferent arterial. So what happens is that when there's increased sodium sensed by these macular cells through adenosine, they will constrict the afferent glomerular arterioles, protecting glomeruli from reduced intraglomerular pressure. So that makes sense, right? Because if you vasoconstrict, less blood flow is going to go to the glomerulus, and therefore it's going to protect the glomerulus. Because what are you doing? You're going to be vasoconstricting. So other effects of this SGL2 inhibitors, they improve tubular oxygenation and metabolism, 
and reduce renal inflammation and fibrosis. And also, uh, it's very important to realize that, you know, when you introduce a sodium glucose link transport to inhibitors, you know, in patients who have a very low GFR, you know, that's not encouraged. Why is it not encouraged? Because when you start these medications, you'll get an initial dip of the GFR. Why? Because you're vasoconstricting the afferents. If you're vasoconstricting the afferents, you're decreasing GFR initially. Therefore, it, it's going to worsen if it's already low to begin with. So one thing I wanted to mention with that is adenosine. So this leads into a great basic science question, which is going to be, isn't adenosine a basal dilator? But then you just said it's a constrictor. Now I'm confused. And I know someone thought about that. So I wanted to take a little side note here. So by far, the dominant effect of adenosine in most vascular beds is vasodilation. No questions asked. So on the board exams, you know what I mean? The nucleoside can cause vasoconstrictions uh, in renal resistance vessels through activation of the A1 adenosine receptor in the afferent arterioles. So that's going to be a great question on the board exams of when is adenosine going to have a vasoconstriction effect? It's at the A1 receptor at the afferent arterioles. So now I gave you all this info. How are they going to ask this in the question? So let's do one together. Let me make this one up. How about a, I don't know, 60-year-old woman is evaluated for management of type 2 diabetes? Medical history is significant for high blood pressure, hypertension. Uh, the medications are metformin, a SGL2 inhibitor called empagliflozin, uh, brand name Jardiance, atorvastatin, and hydrochlorothiazide. On exam, uh, blood pressure is 130 over 80. The remainder of the physical exam is unremarkable, normal. Got some labs that shows a hemoglobin A1C of 7 and an estimated GFR of 50 mLs per minute and a urine-albumin-to-creatinine ratio of 98. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in treatment of this 60-year-old type 2 diabetic? Is it A, start uh, lisinopril? Is it B, start verapamil? Is it C, stop the impegliflozin? Is it D, stop metformin? And the right answer here is going to be a. So we, this is how they're going to ask it. So what is the recommendations that ACE inhibitor angiotensin receptor blocker therapies are recommended in non-pregnant women with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and estimated GFR of less than 60, and a urine albumin to creatinine ratio that exceeds 30? So this was just checking off all the boxes there. So one thing that really jumped out at me was going to be choice B, start verapamil. Were they just bored and put verapamil there, or there's some science behind it? And you know what, everyone? There is some science behind CCBs, calcium channel blockers, and proteinuria. So when we talk about CCBs, they come in two flavors. There's what's called non-dihydropyridines and dihydropyridines. Dihydropyridines mainly work on blood vessels, things like amylodipine, nifedipine, and non-dihydropyridines usually work more on the AB node. Classic ones are deltaizem and verapamil. So in the question to use, Verapamil, which is a non-dihydropyridine, and they do have antiproteinuriac effects. So it is a reasonable option for patients with diabetic kidney disease and persistent proteinuria despite maximum doses of an ACE or ARB, or they can't tolerate 
an ACE or an ARM, you know, because there's a contraindication, such as maybe they developed angioedema from the ACE and they can't tolerate the ARM, who knows? So that's going to be a very important pearl. So of course, someone listening to this podcast is going to say, sure, I can memorize that, Dr. Raj, but why? So how do non-dihydropyridines, CCBs, reduce proteinuria? So non-dihydropyridine CCBs have been shown to reduce proteinuria greater than dihydropyridines. And the difference between the two is thought to stem from the fact that dihydropyridines affect only the afferent arterioles, right? So what happens if you dilate the afferent, more blood flow is going to go there. But when we talk about the non-dihydropyridines, they affect both the afferent and the efferent. So when you dilate, you know, the efferent, what's going to happen is that you're going to actually uh, filter less. So that's why you're not going to be filtering those proteins into the proximal tubule. So that's going to be a very important pearl that non-dihydropyridine calcium child blockers uh, dilate both the afferent and the efferent. So in the question, they said, hey, maybe we should stop this empagliflozin, which is a sodium glucose link transporter 2 inhibitor, brand name Jardians. And remember, this patient was a diabetic, had chronic kidney disease, and definitely, you know, in someone spilling protein, I mean, you definitely want to put them on a sodium glucose link transporter inhibitor. And also this person is going to be at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So I would keep this medication going. And the last, it was going to be the metformin patient was on this. And it's always good to put a little couple metformin pearls here because metformin is a triple star high yield topic for the boards. So this patient has no indication to stop metformin, you know, or change the dose because his estimated GFR is 50 mLs. And the hemoglobin A1C is getting close to goal. I wouldn't say at goal. I definitely wouldn't stop it. Metformin should be used in precaution in patients with chronic kidney disease. Why? Because of that increased risk of lactic acidosis. Metformin is contraindicated at an estimated GFR of less than 30 mLs per minute, and clinicians should assess benefits and risk of continuing if the GFR is less than 45 mLs per minute during therapy. So, You know, I may have went a little bit longer than I thought, but this is a great question about something that's very common, which is diabetic nephropathy, and how there are so many new pearls and basic science that integrates it all together. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I will see you on the next Beyond the Pearls. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.